don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. Welcome to Franchise Fan Guys. So this week we are on our third episode of the Mission Impossible franchise. I'm Tom Bryfogel. I'm joined by Skidmar and Andy Schmidt. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Andy? I've not accepted any of these missions, and I disavow anything in this podcast. I'm Andy. Hi, I'm Skidmar, and uh, there's only one impossible mission I'm aware of, and it's coming up with a new, clever intro for myself for this franchise. Damn, I was waiting for it today, Skid. <laughs> I, I forgot to do it. I forgot to think of one, and then I was like, oh, screw it. Franchise fan guys. Well, the Mission Impossible films have been criticized for having overly complicated plots. Let's discuss the plots of each of the films. Do they work and make sense? Can you follow them? And most importantly, how important is the plot of the films to the franchise itself? What do you think, Andy? Well, uh, I have an advantage here uh, because I wrote this question. Uh, and so I took detailed notes, uh, during the movies on how the plot unfolds and it was fascinating, (laughs) absolutely (laughs) fascinating. Um, partially because it, they actually work better than I thought, uh, on, on the whole, like if, but you have to like be paying attention to like super detailed, like in some cases, like acting ticks, but it's actually all there. And I think the first one is a pretty good example because as I understand it, they actually cut a fair amount of exposition in that film or they didn't really have it and have it all figured out. But there is a, there's like what I would consider if you are really focused on the plot, there is a, like a very important scene that I didn't realize was quite so plot important. Uh, or sequence, and it's sort of when Ethan kind of has reconnected with the team, and he's got Jean Renault. They've got the knock list, and they're all kind of hiding out in like mm-hmm. uh, like that apartment. And there's all this sort of character stuff going on that actually works. There's and and there's a scene before that one before they recruit Jean Renault, where Emmanuel Barrett, um, uh, what's her name in the in the movie? can't remember her name now in the other character's name but claire yeah claire yeah thanks hmm. thanks yeah when claire is deciding to continue to work with him that's not how she starts that scene out it's not until he says he's going after the knock list that she readjusts her plan in that scene but never says it because you can't like how could you tell the audience that but it's in the acting and it's in the script because that's not her plan and then she signs on when she realizes, wait, no, I still can get the knock list and I can use Ethan to do it. And then in the, in the later in that, in that safe house or whatever, you know, there's more of that sort of thing where like, if you're really paying attention to, to the characters behaviors and their decision-making process, it all kind of adds up. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean like it's plausible. It just means that, that the characters are actually acting appropriately um, in that one. Um, but, but yeah, I was really surprised like when I was really paying attention to plots. Cause I don't think when I went to the movies that I ever paid attention really, like, I mean, I paid attention enough to know like who the bad guys are and like what they're doing. But like really for me, mission impossible is, I mean, I do like the characters. Um, but it really is like, what's, what's the next, you know, and it's usually sectioned off. Like what's the mission that's right in front of you? Oh, you got to dive into the underwater tank to break that thing out like 
that's I go to a Mission Impossible movie for that sort of stuff and to see them overcome sort of these individual challenges. And I assume that they have some sort of string of pearls and they link them together enough to give it a narrative that doesn't bother me. But yeah, I was actually surprised that they held up. But there was there was one that I thought was hilarious, uh, which was Ghost Protocol, because in Ghost Protocol, their mission is they've got the the codes that they that that they need. It's so complicated. It, there's no reason <laughs> for it to be this complicated. They've got the codes <laughs> they need, and the uh, was it the device it, it, itself? Now I can't remember. I, I'm sure it's in my notes here. Um, but basically, there are two things that they have to stop, and they have to stop either one, and then they fail. And, that, and that's in the big sandstorm scene mm-hmm. when the bad guy gets away there. They have completely failed, which they acknowledge like in the next scene when, again, they're in a safe house. <clears throat> and they're like, well, what do we do now or whatever? And Ethan's like, I'm going for a walk. So <clears throat> at that point, this is brilliant. What they do is they introduce an entirely new element to the bad guy's plan. And then decide that that's what they're going to go stop. <laughs> At no point prior to that have they mentioned the need for a satellite hookup or any of the stuff that the entire back half of that film is about. You are told in the beginning, you have to stop one of these two things. If you don't stop, it's nuclear holocaust. And then they fail to stop those two things. And they're like, well, actually, there's this other way we could do it, <laughs> uh, which I think is great. Uh, and by great, I mean really not well done, but also very funny that I have seen that movie like six times and like just always glossed over that. Like, oh, okay. All right. So the satellite thing, that gives us the next mission. Okay. Moving on. Um, I don't know. I'm taking up a lot of time, but what, what, did, what, did, what, did, you, what did you guys think? Because I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, I wrote the question, so I was paying a lot of attention to it. But what did, what did you guys think? I... Uh, I don't know. I don't know the plots. I, I like. I, I I never remember. It's like wait, the Ghost Protocol. Which what's that? Like I the, the things that I remember those movies by, are the the basic the stunt sequences and the heists. I can't ever remember why they're doing the things that they're doing. I literally just watched Ghost Protocol right before we recorded, and I it's like wait, they, what satellite? What like. I'm, I'm so, but I think that it doesn't, the details of it, uh, I'm not real smart about plot stuff anyway. I'm more just kind of, I have my radar is up for anything that's egregious that doesn't seem to make sense. The nice thing that these movies do is they instill some a little bit of trust in the filmmakers that they are crafting a plot that if you really pay attention to it does make sense even if there might be plot holes in it you can just kind of sit back from my perspective and just kind of like watch the craziness happen and the performances and everything that's the way i approach it but you you've not had watching any of these you weren't just like this plot is dumb and it like took you out or on the flip side of that you didn't have a a case where you were like this plot's really engaging i'm really interested in not necessarily the plot mechanics, but like what the thing is, you know, what is the rabbit's foot? Were you curious? You know, you know did you want to see like, because that did happen for me eventually, but not in most of them. Yeah. I, I mean, I said before, I like the fact that they never say what the rabbit's foot is. I love, I love that. They just like, it's just horrible. It's like, it's so horrible. We don't even know what it is, but uh, I like that. The one, <laughs> the one thing that I do like that, is kind of a necessity in movies like this is they do the reiteration 
when they're when they are going through the plot when they're like when they're on the way to the mission they kind of break down it's just like okay we need to do this this and this and then yeah, one of the members about that. yeah and then one of the members of the team was like wait a minute are you telling me that we have to do this this and this and it's like yes we have to do this this and this it's like but that's impossible to do this it's impossible to do this it's to do this like well we have to do this this and this and then it's like okay well now at least in this moment i understand what's going to happen relax luther it's much worse than you think right and that's that's kind of what i was saying they they do a really good job of setting up the 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 very next thing you have to do and it and it and it's and it's all sort of heist movie mechanics right i mean mm-hmm. I, I mean essentially all of those intricate scenes almost all those intricate scenes are are heist things where you have to overcome these obstacles to get the thing or you know in some cases it's to kill the switch or whatever but it's basically to to get the thing that and then and then get out right safely mm-hmm. and so they they go through all the obstacles then they figure out clever ways to get around them then they start doing it and everything goes wrong and then they have to figure out the new plan it's perfect heist mechanics every time and and it's one of the things that, that I think these films do really really well there are two scenes in the first one that really um that really stand out to me that I, that, that I like a lot. There's the one that, that everybody talks about where he's dangling from the wires in the room that Tom, was it you that was just like, why don't they just put a camera in there? And you're like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> good question. Good question. Um, still the scene's exciting, although I may laugh at it every time I see it from now on. Um, but, <laughs> why is there but, no uh, but the other scene in that movie that I loved is when Ethan, meets up with Jim Phelps um, after Phelps is supposed to be dead and they have a conversation like, I don't know, in like a diner or something. Oh Um, yeah. And Ethan is going through in his head, the mechanics of how it works and kind of going through Jim's version of the story. And he's figuring out who's involved and who's not. And he's basically figuring out that Jim is the villain. Right. And that probably Claire is too. Mm -hmm. Um, but so what you're seeing and, and you're going through his thought process, but he's, there's another level of thought process going on underneath what he's sort of vocalizing. I th- I think that scene is great. And I kind of wish they did more of that. There's something similar to that in fallout that I love, which is when they go through the mission to break lane out when he's with the, when he's with, um, Vanessa Kirby's character and her brother. And he, and he's realizing that they have to kill all of these cops oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. they go through that whole scene with, with no, with just the music and all that stuff. Uh, and you see them kill the cops and you see Ethan like kill a cop and then they come back to the present and he's like, uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, and he, and we, and you kind of realize <laughs> like he's got to figure out another way. Like he can't just go around killing all those cops. Right. Um, which is great, but it's a very, it's a similar thing. I would say that's likely a callback, um, to that scene. But yeah, I mean, those, the plot mechanics for the, for these things, I agree with you, Skid. Like I don't, until really fallout is the only one where like, I actually got pretty invested in following the plot mechanics as well as the character stuff. But I think it's because I got so invested in the character stuff and the plot mechanics are woven into what's going on with the characters so well, like, that movie fires on all cylinders. Like from the beginning, when you actually see the three cities destroyed, which winds yeah. up being a, a head fake. Yeah. But like it, it sets the stakes so well. Yes. Yes. And, 
and it's and it's that's such a great scene that like everything that happens after that I'm invested in the plot because I know I now know how it affects our characters. Mm-hmm. Like of course blowing up cities is bad. Like but like all Mission Impossible movies you're like, "Oh yeah, I don't want the world to explode." But like but like that one they really do like an amazing job uh connecting the stakes of what's happening in a plot to the characters, which is very rare in a film like this or in like any mm-hmm. of the Jack Ryan movies or or a James Bond movie, the stakes are almost never fully connected to the characters. Yeah. Like it's are. like a, that they make the stakes as like global. So it's just like, well, you're sort of automatically invested in it because, Hey, my house is in there somewhere, but right. it's, but yeah, as these movies go on, the Chris McQuarrie ones, they do, yeah, they do a great more, a job of making the stakes more intimate. And that's what I, they're, that's the, one of the big reasons for me why the franchise improves as it goes. Why I like the later movies better and better. Um, but what do you, Tom? What do you, what do you think? You're coming at this from a different angle. I agree with you with that. Where in the first movie, the knock list getting out into the world wouldn't really affect you. Watching it's the stakes aren't nearly as high as a virus coming out or nuclear war, anything like that. Yeah, I as far as the plots are concerned, I agree with both of you where it's just about the next 20 minutes. Then there's like relax your senses, learn some more stuff and then 20 more minutes of explosions and holding your breath. But the overall plots besides the first movie, I really couldn't remember what the plots were. I had to look them up and write them down. Uh, I just remember scenes more than I remember the total plots. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all because it's definitely the way I felt. And then when I was writing them down, you know, like even on like Mission Impossible, like my notes are, okay, so the first plan to get the knock list is sort of the classic setup. They do the makeup on the senator, um, which is obviously Tom Cruise. Uh, You know, like like the plan is to get (laughs) the knock list. But then it turns out that whole plan was a setup to, to, to flush out jim phelps so they don't have the knock list so then uh so that but then ethan is the suspect um and he has to clear his name so then he has to then steal the real knock list which (laughs) would i don't know no matter what happens after that cause him to go to jail for the rest of his life um and then and then like she tags claire tags along because now she's like oh he's gonna get the real knock list that's what we want and the whole thing is still to sell it to max but max has some other buyer potentially right she's just gonna sell it to the highest bidder i guess and then it winds up getting personal for Phelps, which is the ultimate mistake, is that he wants he wants Ethan. Um, so, like, it's, it's, it's this very weird thing where I guess ultimately, like, it, it is to get the knock list, but then how to get the knock list changes, like, a couple of different times. And, and just the, the whole idea that they would get the actual knock list to flush out the guy just to prove Ethan's innocence. And then like at the end of that movie, like the U S government's like, that's cool. Like, I don't (laughs) think that's how that ends. (laughs) I realized you want a sequel. 
but I'm pretty sure he's he's executed for this. Um, but yeah, like I thought that was pretty pretty crazy. Um, Mission Impossible Two was just a mess. Um, you know, three is three is also very very complicated. But one of the things that I do like about these is that they. Whoever it is, whether it's the writers, the directors, or the producers, or whoever, somebody on these movies knows or pays a lot of attention to how audiences react to things. And this is something, because I teach, I teach writing classes to storytellers all the time, and one of the things that I see the most of is, and it's very difficult to figure out, and of course, on different things, your mileage may vary, but how much exposition audiences actually need. Because as a writer, you've got answers to all of these questions. Like when I'm writing something, you know, like I'm writing a comic for DC Comics right now, and the comic I'm writing has like this whole kind of world building aspect. And in order for one scene to work, sometimes I have to have figured out, you know, stuff going on like pretty much across the planet. But I have learned over the years that my reader doesn't need to know that just because I did the work to figure out how this all works behind the scenes doesn't mean they have to know that. And the, the people making mission impossible are, are really good about that. They give you just enough for you to, like you said, to trust that like, yeah, okay, that tracks enough. Like I'm good. I'm good to keep going. Yeah. But they don't try to bog you down and over explain things. Um, the term that I use for, for that is like, sometimes I'll get notes about like, well, how does this work? And how does that work? And, and which I don't mind answering, Right. But sometimes because, you know, whether it's an editor or it's a fellow writer that I'm that I'm you know bouncing stuff off of, sometimes they're asking questions that they know I need to know the answers to so that they understand that the, the world and the story works. But the audience doesn't always need to know that stuff. And so sometimes if you're being asked like to put that into a script, which I think often happens, right, whether it's film or television or comics or whatever, um, you're answering questions that no reader or no audience is asking. And that's a really tough tightrope to, to balance on, but it's important. And these movies, I think do a really nice job of giving you just enough to get you to keep moving without asking questions. I remember seeing mission impossible three, which I thought was, was starting to turn the franchise around the first time I saw it. I was like, okay, that was much better than I expected. Cause I really didn't care for mission impossible two. but it had issues. And I was like, well, you know, it has some plot holes and stuff. But even then, like, they weren't so bad that they really bothered me. I was given enough to keep going. So it sounds like we're all kind of in agreement that, that yeah. the plots on some level don't matter, but the craft has to be there to keep you moving without questioning. They don't, want, they don't take you out of the experience uh, very often because the plot is too confusing or whatever. They just they do enough to keep you in. Yeah, it's like, it's not Agatha Christie, but I mean, I think that's a good way to look at it. Kind of what I was saying is they, the filmmakers clearly have put enough work into their story where I have faith that they've done the work and I can just let the story play out without worrying about the details too much. Just from my dumbass, like watcher watching perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I guess another thing in the plots, I like their use of twists throughout all of the movies. I guess that's another thing I want when I see one of these movies, even in, I believe it's Ghost Protocol, where the woman is there to kill the senator and he's there to save the senator. Or There's three people shooting at the person in the theater. Do you guys remember what scene oh, I'm talking yeah, about? Oh, yeah, that's Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. Ilsa, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. 
you're confused because you don't know who's doing what, mm-hmm. and then you get the twist. I guess when when you don't know who to trust or you don't know who's telling the truth, I really enjoy those in these films. Just like Claire in the first one, mm-hmm. she got blown up in a car, and then she appears, and then you... By the end of it, you're trusting her again, and then you realize she was in on it the whole time. I feel like things like that I find more fascinating than just the overall plot of the movies. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, that's classic theme in Mission Impossible is misdirection, double cross, and that kind of keep keeping you off balance as a viewer. Yeah, I love that too. And I love, like, like I said last time, the reveal and fallout where... Lane, where he's talking to Lane, where Henry Cavill's talking to Lane, and he, and then he re- reveals that it's it's Simon Pegg under there, that it's Benji. Was delightful. I just burst out laughing. I was like, this is the best thing in the world. And the Wolf Blitzer thing, like all that stuff, is just uh, that that kind of setting you up for one set of expectations and subverting them really expertly is just I. That's one of my favorite things in the movie and that yeah that as far as plotting goes like that's you're right that's way more important to me than some of the details like why they're doing these heists mission accomplished you actually said that out loud well it's interesting too that you most examples you guys just cited were all very connected to character moments as well which is Mm -hmm. which is you know what, what we were saying that's why the later movies tend to be tend to be better is because the plot which would include the twists get get intertwined with character moments. So the whole thing with with the opera house scene is you don't know like you're invested in like can we trust her? Can we not trust her? Like it's about the character and it's played out in a plot twist and it's mm-hmm. great. Um, and the same thing with with you know your examples from Fallout too that those are those are great character moments. Also there's like a there's there's a lot of these like little funny things like for for I kind of became a fan of this franchise, you know, as it went on, even in the, even in the rogue nation, I wouldn't have said I was, you know, like, like I like them, but I'm not a big fan. I kind of, that was the one that sort of started to turn me into a fan. And I started to pay more attention to them when I was watching them. And I realized that like, there are these things. And one of them is like, Benji always wants to wear a mask, but never does. Right. So it was nice to see that like kind of get paid off on yes, and, and, yes, and, and right. fall out. And they're like, they're, they're sort of those, and they're not quite meta, but they're like, they're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, if you're really, if you do really like this stuff, then you, then you get into those sorts of, sorts of details. And it, so it's nice. And I think that's one of the things that's so cool about both Rogue Nation and Fallout is that they play to new audiences that are much more casual, like the way I was, I would say, for the first three at least. Um, where you go in and you're fine, you don't have any trouble understanding it, and it plays to very effectively to people that are really into it. I think Fallout is brilliant, frankly. But I think mm-hmm. one of the things that they do so brilliantly is they how they kind of reintroduce Julia and all you know all that sort of stuff, so that if you haven't seen a prior Mission Impossible movie, you can still come into that one, and it all is very effective in one in one piece, which is really impressive for something that is essentially a direct sequel, like almost plot wise from the previous one, and is picking up a character who wasn't in the previous one but was in you know, three, three of them ago or whatever, you know, I think it's the, the amount of craft, which, you know, Skid, you were pointing out is, is really impressive, especially as it goes on. Yeah. I think too, one thing that I think the films benefit from is the introduction of the syndicate as a, as a continuing threat. 
it's kind of like they fill the same kind of role as like Spectre does in the James Bond movies, like having that consistent kind of enemy that evolves and they that's something you get to know, you become familiar with as it goes on. I think that and that's right from the TV show, too, which it's actually funny. They because in the fifth season of the Mission Impossible TV show, they I think they had a new producer take over, uh, I think Bruce Lansbury and he wanted to cut down the costs of the show. And so, like I was saying, they were doing all these international missions and everything, and it's very expensive to like, build all the sets. So he wanted to make recenter the show in a domestic context. So they went after this organized crime organization that they just called the syndicate and everything. Most, mostly everything was taking place in the United States. So it was like a cost-saving measure, but now it's like evolved into this thing in the movies where I think it's it's uh, it's just way more compelling to have that set of villains that you could you know that you keep kind of pushing up against. I think I think it's a really really a nice addition to the franchise. Yeah, and it's also pretty funny too because uh, apparently Christopher McQuarrie was one of the writers on Ghost Protocol. I don't think he's credited in the credits, but apparently he did a fair amount of rewriting um, on the fourth film. And apparently he was the one uh, who is a fan of the show. Who in the very last sequence, when like literally when Ethan is like disappearing and he's getting a new mission, it mentions the Syndicate, and that was mm. originally thrown in just like as a nod to the TV show. And then Cruz, the star and the producer, hired Macquarie to write and direct the next one. And the only thing that they agreed on at the the beginning was that it would not be about the syndicate. (laughs) Just saying. Wow. And then, and then apparently, uh, and I'm, I'm, I, he's in my notes here somewhere, but I'm, I'm blanking on, on his name that plays Lane. Um, who's so good in, in, in both of those films. Apparently, he made them both promise that he would be killed in Rogue Nation because he did not want to get sucked into a franchise uh, oh. <laughs> uh, where he had to keep coming back. And so they apparently promised him uh, that that he would not come back for a sequel and then th- that he would die. And then they realized while putting Rogue Nation together that they like the one thing they can't do is kill him. Like it doesn't <laughs> work thematically and from a character standpoint for for Ethan like he has to be captured when they've killed all the other villains and, and which I think by the way is completely correct that movie doesn't work nearly as well if he is just killed yeah, um, yeah. and then and so it's Sha- Sean so, Harris by the way is the actor Sean Harris thank you yeah and he's so good he's so good at this and, and uh, oh yeah and apparently he was like, okay, fine but I'm not coming back for the sequel so again going into Fallout they were like okay well it's not we're not bringing Sean back because he doesn't want to come back. So the one thing they agreed on there was it wouldn't be about Lane. And then, of course, they're like, okay, so we're going to break Lane out. <laughs> so, so then they apparently apparently they went to, like, Sean Harris and were like, we have good news and bad news. The good news is you get another paycheck. <laughs> the bad news is you're going to be in another Mission Impossible movie. And they, they coaxed him back and... Uh, but I, I just think it's kind of funny that like it was just like it was not planned out. But but you know the way that they seem to be approaching these films is very organic. And you know I, it's very easy when you get to a to a level of sort of you know, it's not necessarily power, but like a I guess it's power, right? To where you just you you just think you're right and you just go through and you stop listening. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you can even stop listening to the voice in your head. Um, and they seem to be very good about changing plans because they can just sense that it's not right or they get the sense that the audience, I mean, sometimes it, you know, they're figuring it out from the crew. The crew doesn't seem that invested and they'll, they'll be like, something's not working here. And then, and then they'll figure it out. Like, oh, the scene is really about this other thing. And then they'll rewrite the scene and they'll do it. They'll do it again. And so they, they change a lot in the filming process. And I think they were, I think both with Rogue Nation and Fallout, they didn't have like a completed script that they, and both of them, they didn't have a completed script that resembles the final movie. They had Mm -hmm. set pieces and then they were, they were figuring out how things worked. And, you know, part of this is just Macquarie is so good at writing Mm -hmm. and then directing the scenes to focus in on the character nuances. Like that scene in Rogue Nation, the way it is shot where it's, Alec Baldwin and Angela Bassett talking with Ethan in the background behind Alec Baldwin and with Henry Cavill behind Angela Bassett. The way that scene is shot, it is absolutely about the two men not talking that are also not the focus of the camera. Hmm. And it's fascinating the way that, that that works. And it's not until Angela Bassett says the line, you use a scalpel, I prefer a hammer. Yeah. And at that point, they go into close-ups on those two guys, and you know Ethan Hunt is the scalpel, Henry Cavill, Walker is the hammer. And it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think, we've, uh, I think we may have covered this, this one pretty well. Uh, any last thoughts uh, before we wrap up? I got to say, I want to give it up to uh, Tom Cruise because – like you're saying, you reach that level of power. Like no one is in more position to be a complete megalomaniac and not listen to anyone else, anyone else's opinion or criticisms or anything. But you can see the way that this franchise has been able to pivot. That I think Tom Cruise has managed to leave this franchise in a position where he can keep improving. Whereas, like, someone with total control, like, say, I don't know, George Lucas in certain Star Wars movies made certain <laughs> just mistakes. Just a name out, right? <laughs> just, just, a, just a name. Just a name. I don't know if everyone's familiar with it. But, like, uh, George Lucas, you know, where you could have that total control and not listen to anybody, including the voice inside your head, maybe, and just forge ahead and ruin everything. He did not do that to his credit. As Whatever criticisms you want to lay at his doorstep, many of which may be completely valid, at least, you know, he is able to still be able to be in control and still listen to people and create a, an enduring franchise that keeps improving. I agree. I have nothing else to say except uh, I did not see Mission Impossible ever being a movie I would like, and I ended up liking a few. So, yeah, hats there you off, go. Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Franchise Fan Guys. On the next part, we're going to start talking about the characters of Mission Impossible. Thanks, Andy and Skid. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Thanks for listening to Franchise Fan Guys, Mission Impossible Episode 3 of 5. Please write a review and give a five star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Intro music by Tom Breifogel and John Harvey. To connect, Visit FranchiseFanGuys.com, at FranchiseFanGuys on Instagram, and at GuysFranchise on Twitter.